You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Our Old Testament reading is from Nehemiah chapter 1, and our New Testament reading today is from Revelation 21, 22 through 22, 5. We're going to be starting with our New Testament reading out of Revelation today. So Revelation 21, verse 22 through 22, 5. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations." But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will, be wor- will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp of sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. And then our Old Testament reading and subject for the sermon today is Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servant who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant today, 
and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer of the king. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, teach us what you're trying to build. Teach us what we've been called to. God, I pray that you might help us now over the next six weeks as we sit under this word, this book. You'd help us to repent. Repent of believing the lie of secularism. Repent of believing that some parts of our lives are somehow irreligious or not under the rule of Jesus. Call us to repent of believing that following Jesus can be a quiet thing that happens merely in our hearts. God, call us to the task that we might be a means by which your spirit brings about the discipleship of the nations. A means by which um, all cities, which are your cities, come to submit and to delight in and to rejoice in your reign over all things. Help us to come to recognize that the, the mundane, the everyday, are in fact glorious, are in fact a means by which we, we serve and know and love and treasure you. So God, call us again to be a means by which and the, the task that we've been called to, which is to build the Christian city, to bear witness to the reign of Christ to submit to his rule, to trust his work on our behalf, and to love his word. In your name we pray, amen. In J.R.R. Tolkien's masterpiece, Lord of the Rings, um, and as it's situated in his larger world uh, of Middle-earth, which is about to be, I believe, decimated and destroyed, sadly, and torturously by Amazon. But before we get there... Um, that there is, uh, uh, there is a message, I think, that, that um, typifies a, a lot of what the Christian church has been guilty of uh, over the course of the last hundred years or so. Um, in the Lord of the Rings, uh, rings are made, rings of power are made and distributed, um, particularly distributed to men and to elves and to dwarves. Um, and uh, the, the author says and tells us all of them were deceived. Um, they believe that these, uh, these rings of power and would allow them to operate freely in their own realms with their own people, would give them authority, would give them power to, to operate freely, um, free of um, the power of any evil force over them. And yet Sauron makes his own one ring of power, the one ring to rule them all. I don't have the whole poem here written down. Um, I don't think you're supposed to say it in church because it's the language of Mordor. Um, but, but in the creation of the one ring, he, he binds all the other rings to his own power, his own authority. Um, an interesting thing took place, an experiment really, um, over the course of um, the last several centuries and coming to its height, I believe, um, really over the last 50 or 60 years here in the United States. Um, it was an experiment that is unparalleled in the history of the world. It's never been a tried anywhere, but it has been tried here, and that was the building of the secular city, the building of a secular society. Um, in it, the promise was given that 
Um, uh, We would freely be able to coexist. We would serve no single master, no single God, but you would be free individually to serve whatever God you chose, whatever God you wanted to serve. At the head of society would be just people. It was a vision of a, a pluralistic society where people could coexist and stop killing one another in the name of the gods. It was a beautiful vision in some sense. A a vision that maybe for the first time in all of the world, people could just get along. It would be fine and good. uh, That we wouldn't be reliant upon any divine revelation. We wouldn't come under um, some sort of authoritarian rule from any church. We could be free of Pope. We could be free of any sort of religious zealotry. Free to build a society as we saw fit. And so religion would get its own rings to kind of sit in its own silo, and politics would get its own rings to be able to sit in its own silo, Um, and family and education and children could get their own rings, and they could um, live over there, uh, kind of in their own world. Um, Business world could have its own set of rings, its own set of power and authority, and could live um, over there on its own, Um, and never the twain shall any of those things meet. And yet we were (laughs) deceived. You see, there can be no social, there can be no society, there can be no city without a God. There can be no morality without a God. There can be no good or evil or true or false um, without a God. And so in the displacement of the Christian God, in the displacement of the lordship of Christ over all things, in the displacement of God and his word um, and his decrees about what is good and evil and true and false and beautiful and ugly, came the rule of the self, simply the rule of mankind. And so we were deceived, all of us. There was simply the God of self, the God of the polis, the God of politics, the God of pleasure. And there was lost a sense that all things are ordered and created by God or subject to God and answer to God. It was for us and has been for us a forgetting of the central claim of Jesus at the end of his ministry. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. Listen to that again. All. Not all authority in your private little heart. Belongs to me. No. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus. But as we were deceived, one of the things, tragic things that took place is the mission of the church, the role of the church, the understanding of what the church is here for, what we exist to be and to do was shrunk dramatically. We just finished a series on worship and and, um, 
the, the, the fit, by the way, this is all intentional, how um, the last series on worship and the building of the temple um, fits together with the mission of the church and the task we've been called to in Nehemiah. Um, that, that's on purpose. Uh, but but the, the first thing, one of the things we saw last, um, uh, as we were working our way through worship, um, is the idea that the whole conception of what Christian worship is, what it is that we do when we gather in this room together, how it was shrunk by this secular idea. But worship went from the, 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 at the very center of life in the city, at the very center um, of all of humanity, um, was the gathering of God's people in the presence of God to renew covenant with him. That's what worship is biblically, but it get, gets reduced within a secular society to your private interactions, um, your private existential interactions with God. It's about a private relationship with Jesus. It's not a public declaration of the beauty of God and the authority of God and the reign of God over things. No, it's simply something there to warm your little heart. We were deceived. You see, we gather in this room. Can't help but go back, sorry. I can't let Jay have the last word. (laughs) I love Jay, but like... When we gather in this room, it is a public declaration. It's a public declaration to the governor and the legislature. It's a public declaration to all of the businesses. It's a public declaration to all of our neighbors in this city. It's a public declaration to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. It is a declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he reigns over all things, that he possesses all power and grace and mercy and glory. That's what we do when we gather for worship. It's what worship is. And the same can be said for the mission of the church. It's been within a secular framework, a secular society, narrowed, reduced. Some corners, grossly reduced. So it becomes simply about how how do we get individual souls to, to aspire to either one, an emotional experience, or two, a, merely a set of propositions so that they can go to heaven someday when they die. But that's not what Jesus told us to do. That's not the mission that Jesus charged us with. The mission that Jesus charged us with is go disciple the nations. Go disciple the nations. It's, it's such a large task as to be hilarious. <laughs> Go disciple China. Not make individual Christians in China, but no, take the whole of the society, the whole of the culture, and bring it into submission to the good reign of Jesus. Disciple America. See all of society gladly, joyfully brought under the good reign of Jesus. That we confess Him as Lord. That all of life is ordered to His authority, His reign, His goodness. I mean, it's hilarious. 
Disciple everything. Reorder everything. Acknowledge the fact that Christ is king. But we were deceived. Religion within a secular society is there for your own maybe personal morality, your own personal psychological well-being. It might inform your understanding of certain social constructs like marriage or gender or sexuality. But it needs to stay over there. Don't bring religion into the public square. Don't let religion shape how you do business. Don't let religion shape how you think about politics or laws. Don't let religion shape how you think about medicine or food. It needs to stay siloed, sealed off from the rest of life lived in public. But again, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. Your marriage belongs to Jesus. The raising of your children belongs to Jesus. Their education belongs to Jesus. The magistrate, the governor, the mayor, they answer to Jesus. Your business. It answers to Jesus. All of it, our church, our gathering together as the saints in the presence of God answers to Jesus. So as we begin to establish, um, as we begin to look at over the last six weeks, what is um, the church? The church namely exists as um, at the center of the city, the worship of God. So we gather here to declare his reign, his glory, his goodness, to bring our offerings to him, to be instructed by him, um, to worship together and to be blessed in his presence. And that we are sent from this place under the reign of Jesus to disciple the nations, um, to, to, to whatever roles and vocations and tasks you've been called to. If you're a teacher, to do so as a teacher, um, as a father or a mother, as a father and a mother, as a husband or a wife, as a doctor, um, as a barista, as a photographer, um, uh, as a builder, to do all of your tasks sent by God under the authority of Jesus to see this world reflect his goodness, his mercy, his glory. Um, And so we are called to worship and then sent by God to the task of building a city that reflects the beauty, the glory, the authority, the majesty, the overwhelming joy and grace and goodness and justice of our Lord. So to help us in that task, that's where we're going the next six weeks, um, we're going to turn and look at Nehemiah. Now, we're not going to be able to go chapter by chapter and chapter. The way that we're going to um, work our way through Nehemiah over the next six weeks is we're going to take up particular themes, themes um, as they uh, kind of grow out of the book as we see them um, today, uh, in addition to kind of a broad overview um, that, that we're about to step into. Uh, we're also going to take a look at just chapter one um, and the question of where do we begin in this great task? Um, but, but that's how we're going to take it up. So we're going to talk about um, where do we begin. Next week we're going to talk about everyone in the right place. Like everyone has a role in the task that God's called us to. 
Um, the week after that, we're going to talk about um, the necessity of having swords and shovels, or swords and trowels. Um, we've been called to the task of building, and building will involve conflict. From there, we're going to look at the kinds of conflict. We're going to look at the centrality of worship again. And then we're going to end um, by looking at feasting and gratitude and joy um, as the essential marks of God's people in the midst of the world. Um, in other words, we're not supposed to be angry, curmudgeonly fellows or f- ladies. Um, we're supposed to be a people marked by gratitude and happiness. But we're going to do that through the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah. We're going to take up those themes and examine them um, through the text, looking at particular places um, where these things are presented to us um, in light of Nehemiah. But today I want to kind of lay some of the, the historical groundwork, the, the uh, biblical groundwork for what's going on. And so a little history on Nehemiah. Um, and, and so to get kind of a timeline or, or, or to kind of frame up um, what's going on in Nehemiah, it's important to understand that there's, um, we have a whole lot of biblical data about this time period. Um, and so uh, the book of Daniel is written sometime around here. Haggai, Zechariah, Esther, they're all um, being written and taking place around the same time period, uh, which is during the Babylonian exile when Israel and Judah are taken to Babylon. Um, as we work through this book, as you kind of remember um, the book of Daniel and some other places, Darius and Artaxerxes are likely the same person. Um, these were likely throne names for the same king. And so you're going to see both of those names used in Nehemiah. Um, Ezra is um, a couple of books. Right? Uh, a lot of scholars believe they were written on the same scroll. They, they belong together. Um, Ezra is, is written primarily through the framework of the rebuilding of the temple um, in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is looking at the rebuilding of the city. Um, and those two things are happening uh, largely simultaneously. Uh, next week, as we look specifically at Nehemiah chapter 2, um, you're going to find out that the queen of Artaxerxes is there. And that's likely Esther. So if you know the book of Esther, um, uh, one of the reasons we can look at Nehemiah 2, we see this king who's um, almost inexplicably um, eager to help them rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. Um, it's likely because he's married to a Jewish woman. Um, named Esther. And if you know the story of Esther, uh, that's, um, that's all interconnected there. And, and so as Nehemiah unfolds, um, it's helpful, particularly helpful over the, over the course of the next six weeks. I would just encourage you to be reading it regularly. Try to work your way through Nehemiah once a week. Um, it's not a long book. Um, there's uh, several chapters where you're just getting lists of names and what part of the walls people were working on, um, which we'll talk about next week. Uh, but uh, I, I would just encourage you to read Nehemiah. I, I would encourage you to read it through once a week. And I, and I would also encourage you over the next six weeks to read the book of Ezra um, alongside it a few times um, as you kind of see how uh, these texts describe um, what God is building. And I believe what God has called um, God's people to build, not um, any longer in one particular city in the Middle East, um, in, in Jerusalem, but rather to, to see the world filled with I'm in line with Revelation 21 and 22, uh, which we read earlier, uh, these cities of God um, filling the earth um, and discipling the nations. And so um, I want to um, first give us uh, an overview or six principles um, to kind of take away from the book of Nehemiah um, that, that I pray would, would undergird our study of this book over the next few weeks. The first um, is the goal is a Christian city. I hit on that earlier. I'm just going to talk about it every single week over and over and over again. Um, the goal is not 
simply that we would be um, a faithful church, but rather as a faithful church, um, that God might wield us to bear the fruits of the Spirit in the world in obedience to Jesus and with, with a love for Jesus such that everything around us is transformed. Business owners in this room, your business should be shaped by a, a, an actual conscious desire to honor and glorify Jesus and to obey him. It should be shaped by principles of justice and principles of truth and goodness and beauty that, that are not primarily secular in origin but are fundamentally derived from the Bible. But married couples... Your marriage is not simply a private thing. It is, in fact, um, a public declaration. This is one of the points of Ephesians 5. A public declaration of the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. Um, Every facet of your marriage should be consciously seeking to express and honor the glory of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, and life according to his word. Parents, you're not just trying to set your children up to do well in life. Um, You should seek consciously, with great effort, to to raise children that would know and fear and treasure Christ above all things. Um, That that they would seek, that the win for you as a parent is that your children would reflect the glory, the goodness, the grace, the mercy of King Jesus. As we think about politics, um, the desire, the desire is that the governor would know and the mayors would know and all the health officials would know and city councils would know. They answer to Christ that they would be chastened. Not not released to think that they possess all the authority in heaven and on earth, but no, they would know and be chastened to know that Jesus Christ is their Lord. They would seek to make laws that consciously Reflect the, the, the description, the way that God has designed the world. How he defines morality and good and evil and what is just and what is unjust. You see, the goal is a Christian city. And one of the things um, that, that, that we've gotten kind of flipped around um, is this idea that Christians, should, we should have our private religion and then in whatever way we can, we go to participate in the secular city and contribute in whatever way we can. But the, the, the orientation is, is, it's frankly jarring when you get to Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, in, in Nehemiah 2, the, the king, Artaxerxes, blesses like, with money, like lots of money, the, the, the task the people of God were called to. I mean, Ezra chapter 7, um, the, 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 the magistrate says um, in um, Ezra requesting that they would go back and, and build the temple. Um, he says, go and worship lest God's wrath be upon us, namely the entire empire. In other words, the, the, the orientation was different. The orientation was like, um, um, our, our, he's, not a, he's a pagan, he's a pagan king. But he understood and said, like, I want the people of God to go and I want them to worship. I want the people of God to go and rebuild their city. I want the people of God to build their society. I want the people of God um, to do what they're called to do, lest the wrath of God be on all of us. Um, And we've thought of ourselves primarily as how do we best contribute to a pagan society rather than saying, like, no, the, 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 the task that God's called us to is the center, 
The intention, God's intention for the world, his promise for the world, is that every square inch of it will be Christian, will belong to Jesus. Think about that for a second. The goal is not small little segments of Christians in the world finally escaping from it. But that all of the world will be filled with the truth, the beauty, the goodness, the rule, the authority, the grace, the justice of God. Every part of it. That's where it's all headed. And not in kind of like a Hail Mary sort of way, like it's all going to flounder and be miserable and terrible until the very, very end. And then here comes Jesus, the all-star quarterback, and he throws a ball from the two, he flies really far because he's Jesus, um, and the guy catches it in the other end zone, and we win. No, but the idea is that like, no, Christ is actually building a world filled with his glory and his goodness and his mercy. So the first is the goal is a Christian city. Yes, worship is important. The church is important. The goal is you would be sent out of here as disciples of Jesus, that all of life would be lived under his explicit reign, consciously, on purpose. Um, Central to this task is repentance from sin together. Nehemiah begins there, and um, as the city is reestablished, uh, you see this in Ezra and also in Nehemiah, the people of God come and confess their sins together in the presence of God. Third, restoring biblical worship is first and central. In Ezra chapter 3, correlating with Nehemiah, before the city begins to get rebuilt, first what must be established is biblical worship. How does reformation and transformation come in the city? It's, it's kind of counterintuitive. The very first thing that must happen is God's people must come and return to the Lord and worship him as he's instructed us to do so. That then transforms, shapes, echoes through the rest of society, which is why 2020 was Horrific. We could point to particular laws. We could point to all kinds of different things that went wrong. But I would say the central problem of what took place all over the world in 2020 was the people of God stopped gathering on Sundays to name the reign and the authority of King Jesus. And that created earthquakes in society. That's how God's designed the world to work. The center is worship. And worship, whether you believe in Jesus or not, it holds the whole thing together. Okay. So central to this task is the restoration of biblical worship. Um, and, and, and it's important to recognize, too, that the reason why Israel is sent to Babylon, um, we're told in Isaiah and Jeremiah, is, is two, twofold. One, um, idolatry. So in addition to worshiping Yahweh, in addition to coming to the temple and going through the offerings and offering the worship, um, they, they began to worship other gods. 
So you had worship of Yahweh alongside the worship of other gods. That might be a problem in our day. But you also had, even among the most faithful, a corruption of worshiping God in the ways that God had instructed God's people to worship him. Worshiped in different places, in different ways, not bringing the offerings that God had instructed them to bring. And so you had two two problems that arise within Israel that ultimately lead to um, their exile. And and at the center of both Nehemiah and Ezra is a restoration of biblical worship, and one that we would stop worshiping other things besides beside God, and two, that, that we would stop presuming that we can worship God however we want. So the at center is the reestablishment of biblical worship. Another thing that you're going to find is that conflict is absolutely and definitely and guaranteed to be, in fact, promised to be. I'm trying to find another way to say this. Certain. It's going to be a part of this project. Um, and, and it's going to be come at you in all kinds of sneaky ways. Conflict arises almost immediately in Nehemiah 3 once they start the work. It begins with a proposed partnership. It turns into mockery. Um, you're, you're kind of cast as those deplorable people over there. It turns into slander. You're trying to overthrow the government. You're trying to create the handmaid's tale. Whatever the thing is, it becomes slanderous. But it is absolutely guaranteed by Jesus, by the whole of the biblical witness. If you set out to honor Jesus, to faithfully follow Jesus, to to faithfully declare what Jesus declares, here's the reality. You are going to get in trouble. Like serious trouble. Other Christians are going to come after you. Those who love the idea of secularism, those who hate God are going to come after you. Like there's no way to do this without attracting negative Attention, even if we want to and should seek to, according to Paul. The the, the fact is, is that as we set out um, to build the Christian city, as we set out to honor Jesus, it's going to attract negative attention, slander, conflict, threats, corruption. We live in a day and age which thinks that if, if conflict arises, you're probably doing something wrong. The Bible actually says the exact opposite. Be deeply concerned when all men speak well of you. The center of this project is the word of God taught, proclaimed, sung, counseled, read. The center of our our worship gatherings, but also just the center of life in this city is the word of God everywhere. Read in homes, read in public worship, counseled um, in in relationships and friendships, sung together. The the Bible saturates the work that they set out to do in Nehemiah. And last, the mark of this people. You you would think a people constantly under duress, being threatened, being slandered, um, that they'd be kind of like this tough, angry 
group. Oh, they're tough. And they, even as they're building a wall, they have a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other, which is an awesome image. They're tough. But the note in the whole thing is joy. That they are a joyful people. They laugh. In fact, the, the one place in Nehemiah where everybody gets really, really sad and mourns, like they're immediately rebuked. No, 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 no. This is glorious and good. You see, the mark of God's people in the midst of the world as we go about the tasks that God has set before us um, should be one of absolute glorious gratitude and joy. Now quickly, where do we begin in Nehemiah 1? First, clear-eyed assessment of the city around us. Nehemiah gets a report about what's going on in Jerusalem, what's going on with the people in Jerusalem, um, and he is immediately aware of how bad things are. Um, Actually, the very first thing he's going to do when he gets to Jerusalem is go and lay eyes on exactly how bad things are. And and so we must begin the task that God's called us to with a clear-eyed assessment of, hey, how has God blessed this city? Also, how is this city in direct rebellion against God? Where are the walls collapsing here? So we begin by examining, thinking, seeing. I mean, then begin to understand your life, to begin to understand the city and all of the different facets of the city in light of the larger project that God is up to. Second, lots and lots of prayer. And, and prayer, not just personal prayer. Please pray for personal needs, absolutely. I'm not saying don't do that. Pray for our city. Pray for the magistrates. Pray for business leaders. Pray for doctors. Pray for baristas. Pray for the homeless. Pray for drug addicts. Pray for all the people moving here from California. Pray for all the people leaving here to go to Texas. Like, just pray. Lots and lots of prayer. Um, I've been, uh, we, we are renting our building out every morning of the week. There's a, um, different churches that come through here to pray and to pray for. Um, there's a state senator that's actually asked that churches would gather to pray for her and to pray for um, what's happening in the state legislature. And, and it's been, like, there's a lot of different, very, lots and lots of very different kinds of churches gathering in these mornings. Um, but man, it's been a call to wake up and go, hey, we should be praying for, 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 for laws that are getting passed or laws that are getting voted on. We should be praying about these things. Um, and so I've actually asked if our church could just kind of take a day, um, one day a week, and, and every day that week, every day of the week, not every day of the week, but that day, every week, um, we would just take that morning and gather here and pray, whoever's available. And so there's going to be an email coming out in the next week or so and it kind of says, hey, starting next week, on this morning, 7.15 a.m., uh, anybody who's able, we'd love for you to gather for as long as you're able um, to come and to pray. We'll pray for this state senator, um, and we'll also pray for our state and for our city and for our church. Um, but at the center of this project is first imploring and recognizing we need God. Um, and what marks his prayers are um, reminding God of his covenant promises, repentance, both corporate and personal, Repentance for sin. And then very, very specifically, in the very specific situations that God's placed you in, asking for God's help, asking for what you need. 
Nehemiah is an interesting spot. I love how chapter one ends. It's like this you know, closing remark in the opening credits of a movie. Um, now I was cupbearer to the king. He's cupbearer. He has passport. He has access to the king. And so he asks very specifically in the place that God had situated him, God, give me strength to do what is necessary to this larger project of seeing your city rebuilt. Give me favor with the king and the place that I have with the king. And then the last, where I want us to end this morning, after you've prayed, after you have a clear-eyed assessment of where we are, the city that we're in, after you've pleaded with God to help and asked for God's specific help in the place that you are and that we are, go to work with joy. Get to work. You see, God has called us to, to, to eat and to drink and to practice hospitality. God has called us to build businesses that bless people, that, that, that generate um, wealth and fruitfulness in our city. Um, God has called us to marry and to make love. God has called us um, to drink wine and to celebrate the reign of Jesus over all things. God has taught us to discipline our children into knowing and loving and treasuring Christ, to, to, to raise them up in love and care and the discipline of the Lord that they might know him and treasure him and, and, and the call as we pray, as we assess what's going on, as we understand what God is building in this world is go to work. Not to earn anything, but because of the work of Jesus, because of the grace of God, take all that God has given you. Your relationships, your job, your neighborhood, your roommates, your children, and bring them into line with serving the great end of our King that all the cities of the earth would be his, filled with God's people, marked by joy and gratitude and grace. Let's pray. So Father, we come again to this table where we're fed by you. Fed by you at a victory feast, a feast in which you have declared this whole world is yours. Your enemies of sin and death have been defeated that Denver, Colorado belongs to Jesus. That Lakewood, Colorado belongs to Jesus. That Arvada, Colorado belongs to Jesus. And they will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God just as the waters cover the sea. So God, with that guaranteed promise, Help us, call us, empower us by your spirit in accordance with your word to get to work. To to get to work with joy as those who've been freed from the fear of death and the power of sin. To get to work with joy as those who have been given the truth and instructed by God in his word. In your name we pray, amen.